you have a Bible with you, why don't I encourage you to open on up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2, having a great time studying here what happened on the day of Pentecost. So we're in Acts chapter 2 this morning, and uh, if you're taking notes today, we have a, a, uh, some, uh, some notes available on our website, also on the slides that we'll be showing you. And I've come up with a, a title, really creative title this morning. It's just Peter's Powerful Sermon. How about that? Peter's Powerful Sermon. It's here in Acts 2. This is the sermon at Pentecost. And notice I've already said here it's going to be a part one, because we're going to be looking at this incredible sermon in, uh, in at least three parts, all right? So Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. We've been in it for a couple of weeks. This morning, we're in verses 14 through 21. Let me read it to you, and then we'll jump into our time together, starting again, Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days... I will pour out my spirit as they shall prophesy, and I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, we're grateful this morning to dive into Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We know this to be an incredible time, the beginning of the church. And I pray that this morning as we look at this interesting prophecy of Joel chapter 2 as preached by Peter in Acts 2, that you would open our hearts and minds in a way that we would be blessed, that we would be encouraged, and that we would see your word in the light that it's given to us today, that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to understand it and apply the truths as we're able to our very lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Churches today have lost their love for preaching. To some, preaching seems old and outdated. It seems to be kind of a thing of the past. It seems to be something that's no longer effective in today's culture. Some think that churches can do a better job of reaching people today by having cool music. Or you got to have cool coffee. I mean, if you have pour-over coffee, that's going to get them to come. you got to have a drama program because, you know, we love to see our movies and we'd like to see some drama at church too. Maybe we need to tell more jokes. Maybe we just need to have more fun. Maybe we need to have some well-known celebrities get up on the stage and tell us about their experience with faith. When I was a youth pastor in Texas, I used to speak at FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes at the local high school. And even when I wasn't speaking, I would still go just because I wanted to be there for my students. And I wanted to kind of mix and mingle with some of the other youth pastors in town. Sometimes, just out of curiosity, I would walk with these youth pastors back out to their car after FCA was over just to get to know them and share ideas about our common profession. 
And so one day I asked a guy, hey, what are you preaching on right now in your youth group? And his answer was a shocker for sure. He told me, he said, I'm preaching a series on SpongeBob. Okay. All right. All right. That's a cool youth pastor right there. I asked another youth pastor, what are you preaching to your youth? And he said, well, I'm doing a special series this month entitled Scary Stories from the Bible because you know this is October and Halloween is coming. I asked another youth pastor walking out, and this one's the kicker. I said, how's your youth group going? What are you preaching on? He said, oh, I'm not preaching. We aren't having enough kids come, so we had to cancel youth group. I said, hey, man, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, hey, it's okay. We're playing Survivor instead. We're having more people at church than we've ever had. We're playing the game Survivor instead of youth group. And I thought to myself, what is going on in the world today? We have people preaching in youth groups on SpongeBob, scary stories of the Bible, and playing Survivor. What in the world is going on? Well, the problem is that churches want to be culturally relevant. And that means to them, they, they want to connect people, uh, and they want to connect with them through cool things that are going on, cool stories, cool talk, and cool clothes. To, to them, being relevant means to be witty, to be funny, and to be up on the times. To, to them, the measure of relevancy is a growing church numerically. It's all about having a winsome personality and having great programs for everyone. And let's face it, churches want to hire pastors who are seen as being relevant. Well, guess what? I want to be relevant too, right? Don't we all want to be relevant? I mean, what pastor would say, I don't want to be relevant? What pastor would say, I don't want anyone to see a connection with anything I'm saying in their life in the world today? I hope they don't see any connection at all, right? What pastor would say, my goal is to actually bore people to death by telling them boring things from a boring book called the Bible, well, that's certainly not what we want to be as pastors. No pastor would say that. No pastor thinks that way. So the question really boils down to what does it mean to be relevant? What does that really mean to be relevant and to connect with your people? Get this, I would say that God wants his pastors to be relevant too. But I believe that his kind of relevancy has more to do with the intangibles than with the tangibles. You see, I believe that relevancy begins with the truth. It starts with God's word. The Bible is relevant. I mean, what could possibly be more relevant than the truth of scripture? People today are struggling with real problems and they deserve real answers and they're not gonna get it from SpongeBob and they're not gonna get it by playing Survivor. They're gonna get it from God's word. God's word is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. So no matter who you are this morning, no matter what kind of problems you're going through in your life, if you want something that's relevant, come back to the well. Come back to the depth of God's word and find his word speaking to you in a way that is truly relevant. Let's keep the gimmicks in their proper place. If truth is relevant, then what are we really doing to get truth into the minds of and the hearts of his people? I believe the best way to be relevant as a pastor is to be a minister of the word of God through expository preaching and through expository shepherding. 
I think through preaching the word of God and through shepherding the flock with the word of God in counseling, discipleship, is how someone can be truly relevant. And expository preaching at its core is explaining the Bible and exhorting people to follow the Bible. That's the job of every pastor, to explain the Bible and to exhort people to follow the Bible. And this is how to be truly relevant. And everything else is the bells and whistles. Everything else is the trim. But this is the engine. It's the Word of God. And in his book entitled Preaching, How to Preach Biblically by John MacArthur and the members of the Master's Seminary, expository preaching is defined as preaching that, quote, presupposes an exegetical process to extract the God-intended meaning of Scripture and an explanation of that meaning in a contemporary way, close quote. To say it another way, expository preaching is preaching in such a way as to get the meaning from the Bible passage, and it's presented in its entirety and exactly in the way it was intended by God. Yet another definition of expository preaching offered by Stephen F. Olford is helpful, I think. Quote, expository preaching is the spirit-empowered explanation and proclamation of the text of God's word with due regard to the historical, contextual, grammatical, and doctrinal significance of the given passage with the specific object of invoking Christ-transforming responses. Well, I love these definitions of expository preaching. I get fired up when I read books about expository preaching because I believe that's what God has called me to do. And I think that we've got to understand that expository preaching is on the out and out in today's culture. People just want to be, they want to be fun and they want to be seen as being culturally relevant, but they're missing out explaining deep truths from God's word. And the reason I'm introducing this topic this way, this sermon, this passage today is because we're about to see the first sermon ever preached by an apostle. Since the resurrection of Christ, Jesus preached his sermons, but this is the first opportunity for us to see how did that translate down now to the next generation of apostles and to elders that would keep preaching, hopefully all the way faithfully till today. And so here in Acts 2, we're seeing Peter's powerful sermon on Pentecost, and I want to take three weeks, as I told you earlier, to cover this sermon in detail as the first Christian sermon ever preached by a follower of Christ And like any good sermon, I think we could break Peter's sermon down into three parts. Part number one, the prophecy of Joel, verses 14 to 21. Part number two, the preaching of the gospel, verses 22 through 36. And then in our third uh, message in this series here, we'll look at the plea for repentance in verses 37 through 41. And so this morning, again, we'll only cover that first part, the prophecy of Joel. Now, if you're visiting today, you're kind of brand new showing up, let me just remind you, we are 10 days after the ascension, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, and Jesus had promised to build his church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And Jesus had also promised to send his Holy Spirit, John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus had promised the church and Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit. And both of these things are delivered on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, it's the beginning. It's the birthday of the church. And at the same time, it is the giving and the pouring out 
of the Holy Spirit. And we understand that these were mysteries in the Old Testament, but revealed clearly in the New Testament. As we saw last week, a mystery, something that was hidden, but now revealed supernaturally. And it's poured out on all people there in Acts chapter 2. This takes place here as we see how the Holy Spirit reveals that both Jews and Gentiles are now to be members of the same body as they are now one in Christ. We talked about a little bit last week that just how there was only one incarnation, there is only one inception of the church. So the day of Pentecost is a big deal. Just as Jesus had a birthday to represent the incarnation, the church had a birthday to represent its inception. Just as God's people didn't fully understand the Messiah until he came, God's people didn't fully understand God's plan for the church until it came. And as the Holy Spirit came and revealed his plan for the church, it became more and more and more clear that we understand that through Christ and through the gospel that all believers are to be one. We also see here that every sermon also needs a great introduction. I told you it had three parts. We're looking at part one today. And every sermon's got to have a good introduction, right? And God gave Peter a surefire winner for an introduction. And that was everything we looked at last week as people started speaking in tongues. That grabbed people's attention. You know, in seminary, they're like, make sure your sermon, you know, has an introduction and your introduction grabs people's attention. And you say something that's profound and you grab, grab their attention. Well, God had already grabbed the audience's attention with all that happened that we read through last week again about speaking in tongues. And so the interest was incredibly high. There there was very interested now to sit and listen to whatever it was Peter had to say as the Holy Spirit had filled the apostles and their close associates uh, with the ability, the special gift of speaking in tongues. We saw last week how these tongues were real languages, not the tongues of angels, not ecstatic speech. This gift of tongues or languages was one of the spiritual gifts given to the early church so that they could preach the gospel in other languages that they had never learned, that they had never studied. It was a miracle. And there was at least 16 different dialects or languages that were represented in Jerusalem as everybody had come for this special feast, the Feast of Pentecost. And now that this has happened, everybody wants to know what does this mean? They were amazed and astonished For these were all Galileans. Remember, these were the uneducated farmers and fishermen who are now speaking clearly in these other languages. And so how did the crowd respond? Well, some of them mocked this gift of tongues and said, well, they must be filled with new wine. And it was in this moment that Peter stood up and he preaches now this first sermon. And so let's look at this first point, the prophecy of Joel, and see what it is that Peter has to say. And as we look at just that first point, the prophecy of Joel, I'm going to break that down into three headings. All right. So heading number one is the spirit of God, a present advent. The spirit of God, a present advent. If you are taking notes this morning, that first blank says Peter corrected false assumptions. Verses 14 and 15, but Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And so the first part here is Peter just correcting these false assumptions. Peter's there along with the 11. Remember, Matthias had already replaced Judas. So we have 12 apostles. So it's Peter and the 11. And Peter here is taking his stand. And he lifted up his voice and he addressed the people. 
And by the way, that's what a preacher does. A preacher stands firm. A preacher stands courageous. A preacher stands in the face of chaos and, in, and he proclaims God's truth. And so Peter lifted his voice. He raised his voice over the commotion of the crowd and he addressed them. That word addressed there in your English Bible means to speak out. It means to declare. Peter wasn't being shy here. He wasn't offering suggestions. He wasn't taking a poll of everyone's opinion. He inserted himself into the middle of the situation and he addressed the issue at hand. And he says, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear or give heed to my words. So Peter wants everyone to listen up and he wants them to give ear or to listen carefully, to pay attention to what he is about to say. And of course, what Peter is about to say has nothing to do with his own words or even his own opinion, but he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Later in his epistle, Peter says so much in 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11, understanding that when he speaks, he's speaking for God. 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11 says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so we understand Peter knows that he's speaking. He's speaking in this context, the very oracles of God. And in this sermon, Peter is speaking the very words that God wanted him to speak. And the first thing that Peter did as he's getting going here is he's correcting false assumptions. The, the unbelieving crowd assumed that the disciples were drunk. When they didn't know how to understand what was going on, they tried to accuse the disciples of being in some grave sin, and they accused them of being drunk. We talked last week, when people don't understand what God's doing, they just make fun of it, and they began to explain it away in some other ridiculous manner, and that's what these people are doing, but Peter makes it clear that these people are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. According to the Hebrew way of keeping time, this would have been 9 a.m. The first hour of the day is 6 a.m., third hour of the day, 9 a.m. And I, I don't know a whole lot about drinking alcohol. Maybe some of you guys know more than I do. But I know that most people don't get drunk at 9 a.m. Right? Typically, it, those, I mean, unless it's just a hardcore alcoholic, right? I understand they drink all day. But to be drunk at 9 in the morning didn't make much sense. And plus, not only that, it was new wine. They said they've been drinking new wine, which would have been less fermentation and had much less of an opportunity to really cause someone to be drunk. So the explanation that they're giving doesn't make any sense really at all. And Peter here is saying, you know what? That's not what's going on. These men are not drunk. And I just, again, I love the way that we just see here, Peter is correcting these false assumptions. That's what God's called us to do, right? Whether you're a preacher or just an ambassador for Christ, he's called you to say, this is what's going on. This is what people are saying. Here's what the Bible says about it. For example, evolution is not true. It's just not. The Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. We understand that fornication or sexual immorality is not walking in the love of God. We're called uh, in first, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians 5 to be imitators of God, to walk in love, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you. The culture says that adulterers and homosexuals and unrighteous people should be able to live however they want, but the Bible says that these people will not enter the kingdom of God. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's just not true, right? We, we're called to address these things and to address them just like Peter is with the Bible. A, a man cannot say that he is really a woman walking around in a man's body. Like we just can't let that go unaddressed. The Bible says in Genesis 1:27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The culture says, well, there are many ways to heaven, but the Bible says the exact opposite. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father but by me. All I'm trying to say is that the Bible is full of truth, and with truth comes confrontation. And because what is true always is going to confront what is false, it's going to cause a problem. It's going to cause a grind. It's going to cause you to feel like, man, I don't like to be that confrontational person, but you must speak the truth. And Peter is addressing this issue head on. And that's what good preaching does. Good preaching doesn't make assumptions. Good preaching doesn't make false accusations. Good preaching is not standing on a soapbox, but good preaching is standing on the word of God and declaring it for all to hear. And that's exactly what Peter's doing here in Acts 2. So after Peter corrected this false assumption about the disciples not being drunk, he then, your next blank says, Peter referred to Joel's prophecy. He refers to Joel's prophecy. These people need a real answer? Peter's going to give a real answer, and he's going to find it in the Bible. Verse 16 says, brothers, the scripture, uh, excuse me, that's uh, chapter 1, I'm looking at chapter 2, uh, verse 16 says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So they need answers to the questions they're asking. Peter's going to give it to them through the Bible, and he's going to give it to them through Joel chapter 2. In fact, why don't you just turn there with me, if you will. It's one of the minor prophets in your Old Testament. After Ezekiel, you're going to hit Daniel, and then Hosea, and then you'll be there in Joel. There, I helped you out, so you don't have to go to your table of contents, all right? So go, go to your Old Testament, open up to Joel chapter 2, and as you're turning there, since we're going to spend the majority of our time right here, and we'll, 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 we'll look at it from the Acts perspective, but I just wanted you to see in context what he's quoting, where he's quoting it from. The theme of the book of Joel is known as the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is ultimately referring to Christ's second coming when Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is used 19 times by eight different Old Testament authors. The day of the Lord does not have to only refer to the chronological time period, but it can also refer to a general period of wrath and judgment. The day of the Lord does not always refer to only the eschatological event. On occasion, it can refer to a near historical fulfillment as seen in Ezekiel 13, 5, when it speaks of the Babylonian conquest and the destruction of Jerusalem. The day of the Lord is frequently associated with seismic disturbances, violent weather, clouds with thick darkness, cosmic upheaval, and as a great and very awesome day that would come as the destruction from the Almighty. 
When Christ comes back, it is a wonderful day for believers who were converted to Christ during the tribulation, but it is an awful day of judgment for unbelievers, and it will swiftly bring about their end. And so Joel is talking about this day, both near and far, that Joel is referring. This is pre-exilic, before the exile. So some of what Joel has to say is going to come forth through Babylon as Israel will be punished for their apostate state. It's going to happen again in Acts 2 because part of it again is that tongues, if you remember, was a sign of judgment upon the Jews, but a sign to the unbelieving Gentiles. And then it's going to happen again at the very end, at the beginning of the millennium. So in Joel, let's just turn to Joel chapter 2, we see what happens here is there is a sound of the trumpet that accompanies the day of the Lord. Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And in verses 2 through 11, we read about an army that will invade Judah, both in the near future and in the far out future. In the near future, he's referring to the Babylonian army sent by God to demolish the temple and to take the Hebrew people into exile. But the distant future is talking about how the Lord will come and lead his army to defeat all unbelievers at the time of the second coming. For example, look down at verse 11. So it's got a near fulfillment with Babylon. A far fulfillment will be God's army. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And so that would be a reference to what's happening at the end of the tribulation as Christ comes back. And then we see in verses 12 and 13, we see this event in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of this hard time because Israel was needing to be punished in the midst of that judgment context, we see there's still an opportunity for God's people to repent. Look at verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord. So he's like, hey, there's an army coming. It's going to wipe out all the unbelievers. If you see this, the near fulfillment, Babylon's coming. It's going to take care of business here and judging as God's instrument to judge Israel. But even now, I love this about the Bible, even in the midst of chaos and judgment and pending doom, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I love the message here of coming judgment, but it's coupled together with the, with the message of repentance. It's always true of the Lord that right here, right now, whoever you are, even if you're already lost in the near fulfillment, far fulfillment, Joel 2, where are you going, Adam? I'm trying to hang on. I'm not a student at the master's university. It's okay. Listen to this part. Here and now, at this moment, Jesus is saying through his word, the Holy Spirit saying through his word, God saying through his word, rend your hearts, not just your garments. In other words, there was a custom to rending their garments as an outward sign of brokenness and repentance. And Jesus is just making sure, I keep saying Jesus, you know, Jesus is the living word. This is the word of God, the Holy Spirit speaking through Joel. But I'm just saying God would say to us today, 
to rend our hearts that on this day, there is a future judgment. On this day, the day of the Lord is still coming. It's already come in one sense with the first fruits of the day of Pentecost, but it's still coming. And in the middle, we're called to rend our hearts, to repent, and to see the, the graciousness of the Lord that if we return to him with all of our heart, you could be struggling right now in some type of sin, some type of secret sin, hidden sin, outward sin, rebellious sin, hard heart, drifting away from God. And he's saying to us this day that if we turn to him with all of our hearts, if we just return to him, I would plead with you today as a preacher to return to the Lord, to return to the Lord, to, to return to him on this day. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed. It doesn't matter how intellectually you're confused. It doesn't matter to what degree you've adopted the culture. He's saying, turn to me. And on this day, he will not cast you out because of his abounding nature of steadfast love. He's merciful. He's gracious. And then we see in verses 21 through 27 how God replenishes the land with the fruit of the vine, verse 22, with rain, verse 23, with grain and with vats that will overflow with wine and oil, verse 24. And then look at 25. I'm still in Joel 2. I'm just getting up to the context, all right, what he's quoting here in 28 through 32. 25 says, it's another fantastic verse that a lot of Christians, for some reason, don't focus on as much maybe as I think we should. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. So he's saying again to Israel, there, there was judgment on them at this time. There was a famine in the land at this time. God was going to judge them at this time. But he also says, if you turn and you come back to me, and eventually there's always a remnant who will come back, and so they will be blessed with the millennium, with the kingdom. Then he's saying to them, I am going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. No matter what's happened in your life, and no matter what you feel like you've lost opportunity to do, he is a God who restores to his people. And all of this will be fulfilled, I believe, in a future time. I believe this to be talking about specifically the millennial kingdom in a physical sense, but I also believe there is a partial fulfillment of this taking place in the hearts of God's people as they return to him. In other words, God doesn't just bless the future generation in the millennium. He doesn't just bless that future millennium with only physical resources that we read about here, rain and fruit and vats filled with oil and wine. That's also a symbol. It's also a picture of what he gives to every believer. Every believer is filled up with the goodness and the greatness of God. He blesses every believer with rejoicing. And God doesn't just protect us from our physical enemies. He protects you from the evil one. God doesn't just provide a wonderful kingdom on earth. He provides a new heaven and a new earth where you will dwell in righteousness forever. And then look at verses 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has, dwelt, who has dealt, excuse me, dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Simply saying, when you repent, you will be able to praise God's name like never before. When you repent, you will be able to see how wondrously God will deal with you. You will never be put to shame. 
The Lord your God is God and there is no other. It's a beautiful portion of scripture. And then we see the section that Paul, or excuse me, Peter quotes, and he quotes it in Acts 2, 17 through 21, which is our sermon text. And he quotes it directly from Joel 2, now verses 28 through 32. And I just wanted you to see it a little bit in its context, all right? So if you'll turn back to Acts chapter 2, we'll read it. It's pretty much given practically word for word, even though he's quoting from the Septuagint. We understand here that he's quoting from Joel 2 in our Acts 2, now verses 17 through 18. Our next blank is saying this, Peter corrected assumptions. He turned their attention to Joel's prophecy. And then Peter, your next blank, Peter explained this pre-fulfillment of the Spirit's work. He explains this pre-fulfillment of the Spirit's work where he quotes again, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. I believe that Peter is explaining what's happening at Pentecost to be a pre-fulfillment of the Spirit's work. Peter is saying, on the day of Pentecost, you want to know what this is all about? He's saying, this is all about Joel 2, being partially fulfilled. This is the beginning of Joel 2's fulfillment in the power of the Spirit right here, right now. And the full fulfillment of Joel's prophecy will still take place at a future time yet at the second coming during the millennial kingdom as Christ comes back. But this is a pre-fulfillment. This is a foretaste of what is to come. Joel said, and it shall come to pass afterward. And Peter is saying, in these last days. Now, people often ask, what does it mean by the last days? Do you believe that we're living in the last days? These are typically someone who's getting into a sermon on eschatological events. And people, these are the last days, these are the last days. And I'd be like, yes, we're living in the last days. And the last days have been around since Christ's first advent. So from the time Jesus came the first time, all the way until he comes the second time, are the last days that are being referred to. So yes, we are living in the last days because they stretch again from Christ's first coming until the second coming. So the last days we've been living in for how long? Not just since the 90s, people. And not since the 2000s, all right? But you've been, we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. And so God has graciously called the Gentiles during these last days. He's grac- graciously called the Gentiles and he's to himself in salvation. But he's also disciplining Israel because of their unbelief. And so Peter refers to the last days or the last times. He refers to it uh, in 1 Peter 1.20. John talks about we're living on the last hour. 1 John uh, 2.18, we're living in the last days, the last times, the last hour, because Jesus could come back at any moment. So the reason they're referred as the last days is this could be the last day. Like you understand there is no promise that you have tomorrow. Christ could come back today. And so we're seeing here that on the day of Pentecost, At the beginning of the church age, God is giving both a preview and a sample of the power that the Holy Spirit will realize in his kingdom. And so Peter continues in verse 17 by saying, God declares, 
Look at verse 17. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So they're seeing people speak in tongues. They've heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They see tongues as of fire over each apostle and associate's uh, uh, head who has received this gift. And, and, and they're saying, what's going on? He's like, this is what God already said. In Joel 2, he said, he's going to pour out his spirit. Now, I believe in the Joel 2 context, he's also talking about the fact that he's pouring out his spirit as in salvation, conversion, as, as the Holy Spirit comes now to be first, as we talked about last week, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then in an ongoing way to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying here that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. I, I would even say that this is saying that those who are entering the millennial kingdom will be filled with the Spirit, meaning that they will all be saved. When he says, I'm pouring out my Spirit on all flesh, I'm not saying that he's pouring out his Spirit on unbelievers, but he's pouring out his Spirit on believers. And in the context of the millennial kingdom, they'll all be saved because all of those who are saved during the tribulation will enter into the millennium. And Christ refers to this a little bit in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 25, 46 and following says, and these will go away in eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So in other words, the righteous are redeemed. The righteous are those who have received Christ's righteousness. The righteous are those who have been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, which is true of all Christians who will enter into eternal life. Now, during the church age, which is beginning here at Pentecost, there is a pouring out of God's spirit as we see this very thing happening in Acts 2. And the fact that the spirit is poured out on every believer is also apparent as we look at the rest of the New Testament, talking about how the spirit's poured out on every believer. Titus chapter three, verses five and six, talk about how we're saved, not by our works, but according to God's mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. Here's what I'm trying to say. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not just a Pentecost day. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a reminder that the Holy Spirit is now given to every New Testament believer. It's the thought that not only is the Holy Spirit beside you, he's now inside of you. And if the fact that the Holy Spirit is inside of you is you receiving this idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And the next uh, phrase here, verse 17 says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now we know that just as Speaking in tongues is a special gift. Prophecy is a gift as well. And prophecy could be defined in two ways. It could be defined as foretelling the future, or it could be defined as forthtelling the truth. And if you take the position that prophecy is forthtelling the, the, the truth, just preaching, proclaiming God's truth, then that gift of prophecy, I would say, still exists today. Anytime someone's proclaiming God's truth, if you want to define prophecy as preaching the truth, I'm fine with that. But if you define prophecy as foretelling the future, that's the gift that I believe has had, had worked in the New Testament as given. And this prophecy, I think, has to do mainly with that, the idea of foretelling what will happen in the future, that when the Spirit was poured out, there was definitely speaking in tongues. There was definitely foretelling of the future that was going on. And we see that referenced a few times in the New Testament. In fact, we understand in Romans 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let them use them 
If prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 10 also talks about the gift of prophecy to another working miracles, to another prophecy as to the ability to distinguish between spirits. But this is the one I want you to turn to, which is in Acts 21, verse 8, about foretelling the future. We see that in full work here. Acts chapter 21, verse 8, which also answers the questions about, well, what's the whole deal about sons and daughters? Like, does God pour out the Holy Spirit on male and female? The answer is yes. Do male and female both prophesy? The answer is yes. The, the answer here is that God shows us that not only from the prophecy of Joel, but we see it here in the narrative of Acts chapter 21, verse 8, where we read, on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Remember Philip, the evangelist to the Ethiopian eunuch? Remember Philip, one of the seven deacons of the early church? This is that guy, Philip. We like Philip. He's a good guy. You guys like Philip? All right, we like Philip. And he had four unmarried daughters. All right, guys, if you're single, you would have wanted to hang out with Philip's daughters because Philip was the man. All right, he's the evangelist. He's baptizing people. He's preaching the word. He's got four unmarried daughters. But watch out, guys, because these girls are prophesying. He had four girls who prophesied, and that's all he says about it. He doesn't tell us exactly what they said, how much they prophesied. We just know these girls got the gift. They have the gift of prophecy. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet, this is another person, not one of the four daughters, but a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, here's a prophecy, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Well, there's a clear prophecy that we see someone named Agabus, who's somehow connected maybe with Philip and his four daughters, at least they're connected verse to verse here, that was giving a, a, a prophecy of what would happen in the future. And so we're understanding, again, no one's denying, just like I told you last week, no one's denying the gift of tongues existed, that it was real, and that it was awesome. No one's denying that the gift of prophecy was given, that it was real, and that it was awesome. And if you were a single guy, again, you would have wanted to date one of Philip's daughters. And she would have prophesied whether or not you're going to get married to her or not. And you would know. But we're just saying that this gift was real. This gift existed. And then last week I told you in 1 Corinthians 13 that this gift ceased and it passed away when the perfect came. And so we understand that this gift was never intended to last forever, but certainly was given at Pentecost and continued throughout the early church. And it is something that is a magnificent, beautiful thing. And that's part of what Acts 2 is referring to. He's just saying, hey guys, there's going to be some awesome stuff that's going to happen. People are going to speak in tongues. Men and women are going to prophesy. Everybody's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And whether or not everybody has these same two gifts of tongues and prophecy, everyone will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, verse 17 says, and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And we know this is consistent throughout the Bible. Abraham had seen a vision in Genesis 15:1. Daniel had seen dreams dreams and visions in Daniel 7, 1. Peter saw a vision when he was on the rooftop praying in Acts 10. Paul saw visions and revelations of the Lord and stated so much as in 2 Corinthians 12, 1. John saw visions and revelation 9, 17. And so all we're saying is that 
throughout the, the New Testament era, which we're still in, throughout the new church here, prior to the giving of the, of the completion of the canon, which would be the end of the Bible, given in 95 AD with the book of Revelation, that's the way I understand it, that these were gifts that were to continue up to then. And then in verse 18, he doubles down on what was said in verse 17, even on my male and, uh, servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So we've seen how both in the Old and the New Testament, men and women were prophesying and speaking the truth of God's word. And Peter is saying that these miraculous events happening at Pentecost are a precursor to what will happen in the millennial kingdom when Joel's prophecy is fully fulfilled. Remember, the Pentecost was that celebration of the first fruits, the initial gifting and there will be more gifting yet in the future. And so there is definitely a, a present advent here, but there will be a future fulfillment when all of Joel's prophecy will be fulfilled, and that won't happen until the day of the Lord. That's our second point this morning. Number two, as we saw the advent, the giving of the Holy Spirit, now we're seeing the severity of God, the severity of God, a postponed apocalypse. While tongues was given, and while prophecy was given, and while we see that functioning both on the day of Pentecost and throughout this, this, this first century, we understand that some of these things did not happen yet. And the first one would be wonders in the heavens above. So verse 19 now talks about how, and, and I will show wonders in the heavens above. So what are we talking about here? Well, I, I think these wonders that Peter is talking about did not happen at Pentecost, but they will happen just prior to the second coming of Christ. And I believe Jesus references this same idea in Matthew 24, again on the sermon uh, on Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, immediately after the tribulation. So that gives us some timing when we can expect these wonders in the heavens above. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of the heaven of heaven to the other. So what we're saying is that didn't happen in Acts 2. When Jesus said it was going to happen, he said it was going to happen after the tribulation which had not yet taken place. Even if you believe the tribulation happened in 70 AD and with Nero, that hadn't taken place yet. So we understand that there's still a future here looking to these wonders in the heavens above. And Peter's saying, not only is there gonna be wonders in the heavens above, but there will also, your next blank, there will be signs happening on earth below signs on the earth below. Now this was happening with the speaking in tongues and the, the real languages that were represented by those who came to Pentecost. Uh, these signs continued. Acts 4, 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Acts 5, 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the disciples. Acts 14, verse 3, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Acts 15, 15, 12, what signs and wonders God had done through them and among the Gentiles. So the wonders in the heavens above has not happened yet, but the signs on the earth below 
has happened and will continue to happen and will happen to even a greater degree at the ushering in of the millennial kingdom. And then at the end of verse 19, we see blood, fire, and smoke all there in verse 19. We see this kind of language in Revelation particularly in Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, when it talks about there will be fire from the altar, flashes of lightning. Revelation 8, 7, there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. Revelation 8, 8, there's a burning with fire and a third of the sea became blood. Revelation 18, there's a, 8, verse 10, there's a blazing like a torch. Revelation 9, verse 2, there's smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Smoke came um, from the locust on the earth. Uh, so there's all kinds of references of the blood, the smoke and the fire that still will happen, I believe, just at the second coming of Christ. Again, this didn't happen at Pentecost, but it'll happen at the second coming. And then in verse 20, Acts verse chapter two, verse 20, there's the sun was turned to darkness. The sun was turned to darkness. We understand there's moments where that happens throughout biblical history, particularly when Jesus died on the cross. And then again, we'll see it when he comes back. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. So the sun will be darkened and the moon will also be darkened or turned to blood. Your next blank, the moon will be turned to blood. The moon here being turned to blood is not mentioned in, 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 uh, again outside of this one passage, but it talks again about it either being darkened or turned to blood. But the idea of blood is still apparent all throughout the second coming, as I just read to you from Revelation chapter 8, but also in Revelation chapter 19, talking about things turning to blood, uh, Jesus uh, opened up uh, the, the heavens and came back on a white horse right? And he's, he's got, uh, he's the one sitting on his horse is called faithful and true. And he's got eyes like a flame of fire. And it says that his uh, robe was dipped in blood. So again, a lot of talk here, a lot of language about what would happen at Christ's second coming. Peter's saying, we're, we're fulfilling part of this now. The rest of it will be fulfilled. Your next blank says before the day of the Lord. Again, this will all happen. The wonders in the heavens above, the signs on the earth below, the blood, fire, and smoke just before the great and magnificent day of the Lord. Further evidence that the day of the Lord was not fully fulfilled in Acts 2 is the fact that it's still mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so here's what we've seen so far. We've seen the Spirit of God, a present advent, coming with power, with the gifting of speaking in tongues, and with prophecy. Those powerful events. We also see the severity of God. There's a postponed apocalypse that has not yet happened, but will happen at the second coming. And then our last part for this morning is this, number three, the salvation of God, a permanent assurance. Don't you love that both in Joel 2 and here in Acts 2, this passage from Joel 2, which can be challenging to comprehend and to try to interpret, certainly ends in a powerful way. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Please listen to me this morning. If you understand nothing else about Joel's prophecy and you've never turned to a minor prophet a day in your life, and you're scared to death about trying to understand it 100% accurately, please understand this, that there is assurance provided today for all who call upon his name. 
That to this moment, on this day, we can say, your next blank says, everyone who calls. Don't you love that about the Bible? It's everyone who calls. It shall come to pass that every person who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It reminds me a little bit of the whosoever in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't matter about your upbringing. It doesn't matter about your culture or your color or what faith background you have. Whoever comes to him shall be saved. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with your heart, one is, believes and is justified. And with your mouth, you confess and are saved. Everyone who comes. You could be a, a student at the master's university. You could have been raised at Grace Community Church. You could be a really good person on the outside, but you still have to call upon your next blank, the name of the Lord. You're not calling upon your mom or your dad or your church's doctrinal statement. You're not calling upon a political party. You're not calling upon any amount of money or expertise or intellect. You are calling upon the Lord. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You got to call on Jesus. You got to understand the Jesus of the Bible. You have to believe that he came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross and that he was raised from the dead, that you could have new life. And this whole thing at Pentecost is all about Christ. There's the wonders in heaven. There's the speaking in tongues. There's the prophecy coming out. People are like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And it's like, well, it's about Christ. He's coming back. He left, but he'll be coming back. And between now and then, let's live for him. Let's worship him. Let's obey him. Let's be humble like he was. Let's serve others like he did because he's coming back. So you better call upon the name of the Lord. Your next blank says that you shall be saved. Notice it doesn't say you might be saved. It doesn't say if you call upon him and go to church every Sunday, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if you call upon him and have a perfect marriage, a perfect life, or even if you've been baptized, or even if you can quote John 3.16. It, it just says if you just call upon him, if you in your heart of hearts receive him, as John 1.12 talks about, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 1 John 5, 13, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may have eternal life. And so let me just ask you this morning as we're just into the first point of Peter's sermon where he references the prophecy from Joel. Hopefully you understand just a little bit better. It's partially fulfilled at Pentecost. There's a full fulfillment in the future, but right then, and in the future, and in between them, you got to call upon the name of the Lord. you got to come to the end of yourself. You've got to realize that you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just intellectually, not just externally adhering to it. In your heart of hearts, there needs to be new life in you. And it's God's work. It's his sovereign power. But he begins to bend your will and to transform your desires and to give you the faith that you've never had. It's God-given faith. And he might be calling you right now. He might be saying, hey, this is the last days. This is it. There will be no tomorrow. 
There is going to be no March the whatever tomorrow is, 8th, 9th, whatever. All right, so, but this is it. And he's calling you to himself on this day. Are you a believer? Have you called upon his name? Well, let me ask you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you walking with him? Are you this day amazed and astonished as you read the Bible, the beauty of the connection that we see between Joel 2, Acts 2? Are you fired up this morning? You might be saying, well, Adam, I'm a cessationist. I'm a cessationist. I don't raise my hands like you do. You know, I don't speak in tongues. I don't either. I don't prophesy. I don't either, but I preach the word. And God's called you to preach the word with your life and with every opportunity that you have. And you need maybe an Acts 2 moment. I'm praying for our church that we would experience revival. Now people say, well, what about revival? God already lives in you. Yeah, he lives in me. And I want him to fan the flame. And I want to be filled to the brim today. And I am not saying that we want to go off the rails here into some dangerous theology. You know me better than that. But I am saying, let's get fired up. Come on, people. This is Pentecost we're studying. If we can't wake up and be like, oh my goodness, it's Joel 2, and there's wonders in heaven, and there's signs below. Isn't that awesome? And then it's like, and it changes my life. Like, this is real. Like, get out of your rut. What time is this sermon supposed to be over? All right, just get, get out of the rut of like, oh, I come, I read my Bible, I'm writing a paper for class. It's awesome. You know, it's like, no, I need the living God. And I need him to stir up my marriage and my family and my personal devotions. I want more of him. And if that's you this morning, we want to invite you up after this final prayer and closing song. We'll have someone standing right over here. We want to pray with you. We want to come alongside you. We want to be a church that's encouraging the faith in each other's hearts and each other's lives. I can't wait to continue next week. You come back. We're going to heat things up a little bit more here in Acts chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of opening your word. God, we know that we got a, a big dump today from Joel 2, but we're not afraid of it. We're thankful for it, God. We're thankful for a church that wants to turn to their Old Testament and a church that wants to dig deep and try to understand to the best of our ability with your help by the Spirit's power what you meant by what you said in Joel 2 and through Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And while we may have a few differences here and there and variations of finer points of theology, certainly help us not to forget verse 21 that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, may we call upon you this day. May the unbeliever that's here in this room this morning be stirred in their heart and not be able to leave without saying, I need to call upon the name of the Lord. I pray for every believer here today that you would fire us up, not just with some kind of external emotionalism. We need an internal fire burning in our hearts to want to read your word, study your word, to get it right, that you would apply it to our lives that you would cause us to be humble and holy servants of the most high God. And so as we sing this last song, preparing our hearts, Lord, to take place uh, here in the, the Lord's table, I pray that you would encourage us and that you would allow us to love you with all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.